there. My name is Jane Chai, and I'm a co-host of the Pulse podcast by Wharton Digital Health. In this episode, I had the opportunity to sit down with Sangu Delhi. Sangu Delhi is a Ghanaian investor and entrepreneur with a JD from Harvard Law School and an MBA from Harvard Business School. Mr. Delhi was selected by Forbes and the 30 Under 30 Entrepreneurs list in Africa in 2014. Mr. Delhi is Managing Director of Africa Health Holdings and the founder, chairman, and CEO of Golden Palm Investments. We're so excited to have you on the podcast today. Excited to be here. Excited to join you and, and glad you're doing this podcast. Great. So we'll start off with a little bit of introduction on your background for our listeners who may not be as familiar. Can you describe a bit about your childhood and what your experiences were like growing up? Sure. So, you know, I grew up in Ghana, in West Africa, and I was born and raised here. Had a bit of exposure to the region, to the West African sub-region, and then moved to the U.S., got a scholarship to attend high school. I went to the Petty School in the U.S., and after that, went to Harvard for my undergrad and, and as you mentioned, for grad school as well. And for the past 15 years, I've been involved in various investment and entrepreneurial ventures uh, related to the African continent. How did you become interested in entrepreneurship and investment and specifically the focus on Africa? So I think growing up, I grew up in a very Pan-African household, right? So even though I was born in Ghana, my father's from Ghana, my mother's family is mixed. So my family is a mix of Ghana, Egypt, and Burkina Faso, right? And my father's work, he's a doctor and a human rights activist. His human rights activism work in particular meant that when I was growing up, I grew up with refugees from Sierra Leone and Liberia. And so I was intimately involved and exposed to things that were happening across the continent. And so I had that Pan-African consciousness to start with, right? And then I think part of it was also those experiences growing up. You know, I, I distinctly remember some of the refugees. I had the great fortune of meeting as a kid. You know, you'd meet men, young men who had their limbs chopped off during some of the brutal civil wars, or grandmothers who, in the midst of the civil war, grandmothers who had faced all sorts of violence from, you know, from rebels young enough to be their grandson. And I think those sorts of experiences really scarred me and, and shaped my consciousness in ways that I always knew that whatever it is I ended up doing, it would have to be connected um, to the African continent. And one particular incident that sticks to my mind was driving to school one day when The Economist, we used to buy magazines on the road, and The Economist had the cover, pitch black, contours of the African continent, a man holding a grenade launcher, and those words that forever haunted the hopeless continent. And I remember having a discussion with my father at the time, wondering why do they think we're hopeless and feeling motivated and inspired to want to fight back against that egregious narrative and to challenge that narrative and that misconception of my continent as a, as a place without hope. I recall that exact Economist cover. And I think for many Africans or individuals who descended from the African continent, that image was so poignant and I think really drove up a point around opportunities and reframing the narrative, especially as we move into the next decade in the 2020s about all the different investment opportunities on the other economic, healthcare, and other industry occurrences that are present and very much vibrant on the continent. And so broadcasting that to the West, especially against a historical narrative that paints Africa as a very disadvantaged continent, I think is very much well taken. I'm curious, given that conscientiousness that you described around pan-Africanism and the opportunities to move forward or help boost the continent. What 
led you to explore entrepreneurship and investment specifically as the tool or the channel by which you think you would add the most value in achieving that mission? So, you know, it's been an interesting journey there because I think that growing up, I was very much your, you know, big activist, right? Human rights activist, down with the system, burn it all down. And I actually have this picture, which I'll probably share with you after this podcast with me leading this massive rally freshman year. You know, we did a sit down in the president's office, marching for workers' rights. And at that moment in time, if you asked the younger me that I would get involved in business, I would have been apoplectic. I would have said, no way, it's impossible. Business is evil, terrible. We need to bring it down and we need to fight for workers' rights and for the revolution. Um, But I think a, a number of different things happened. So one moment in particular, which I remember, was when I, I set up Clean Aqua, which was a water and sanitation nonprofit. Our first project was a community called Ejimante, um in Ghana. And it had a spring that was infested with E. coli and very high infant mortality, high incidences of diarrhea and other water-related diseases. And so we went in to get involved, put in water infrastructure, sanitation infrastructure, work with the community. And I remember at one of the community meetings, um, we had everyone in the community out. And I'd asked them the question, what are the greatest needs in this community? And I was stunned by one young man got up and said, which translates to we want jobs, right? And so that, that sparked this conversation with the rest of, of the young people in the community where it, was, it became very clear to me that while they recognized and appreciated the water infrastructure we had put in, they wanted to be empowered to pursue their own uh, destiny, right? They wanted that economic empowerment. They wanted to be able to take care of their own needs. They wanted jobs. They wanted a sustainable form of development and not just the handouts or you give them infrastructure without them being able, which is great. That's important. I'm not saying it's not, but we need more than that. And so that, that really inspired this philosophical change in my approach on look, how best should we aid communities in need? And, and that set me on a journey towards use in entrepreneurship and investment as tools um, to bring about sustainable change. I'm also curious to understand what it was like for you going from such a Pan-Africa background to a very institutionalized Western organization such as Harvard. What what was that experience like when you first arrived? And did you find that the environment and atmosphere and your peers actually helped expand your view of the world? Or was there a bit more of a dissonance in terms of culture and new experiences? Yeah, so I think that, look, by and large, I had an extraordinary experience at Harvard, right? It was by far some of the best years of my life. I met people from all over the world, right? Who I met people who pushed my horizons, who taught me new things, you know, all sorts of people. I mean, I literally met someone, um, his parents were involved in, in the Iraqi war. He was, you know, they're Kurdish, right? Uh, you know, I, I knew nothing about the intricacies, of the relationships there, right? I would meet people from Pakistan. I would meet people from Australia and even within the U.S., okay? Um, I met people from Alaska. I met people from Appalachia. I met, I met people from different parts of the U.S. that gave me a nuanced perspective on America. And I got to understand that there isn't just one America. There's lots of different Americas, right? And so I think that um, it, was, it was really formative from that perspective. And it was, it was, it was by and large, really extraordinary. And I was able to have the opportunity to really explore. Um, and it's no surprise that it was at Harvard where I, I got my inspiration for social and economic, economic entrepreneurship. 
that's where I started uh, my business 15 years ago. That's where I, I co-founded my nonprofit 15 years ago. So, so I, I owe a lot to the school. That said, Harvard and I think Penn and all these institutions um, are not perfect. And like America, they represent the very best and sometimes also the very worst. And so there were some regrettable incidents, right? There were the microaggressions you experience as a man of color on campus. There were the few times you tried to get into your dorm and people slammed the door on you because they assume you're not a student and you need to pull on out your ID and swipe yourself in. There was the very regrettable incident that was covered in the press where a number of, of, of us Black students were playing flag football in the quad and a resident called the police on us. There were a number of those incidents, right? And, and those incidents to me are less Harvard specific, to be honest, and more a broader narrative of the challenges and the realities of race in America, right? A reality that um, has yet to be fully confronted to this day. But Harvard specific, I would say, is probably more tied to some of the starkness of some of the socioeconomic divides and how, in as much as I'm very proud of my alma mater for what they've done for financial aid and what they've done to make the school more inclusive. I think that it still remains a bastion of extreme privilege. And there's still a lot more we need to do to make our community more inclusive. Absolutely. I think that's all very well said, especially dovetailing with the systemic historical racism and discrimination that's plagued so many people of color in the United States. I'm curious how that resonated with you, given your experience in Africa, if you saw similar themes or if a lot of what we're seeing today, and especially as we touch upon later in the interview around healthcare specifically and the disparities there, if that's something that you also saw reflected in Africa. Yes. So, of course, I think that there are inequalities everywhere and there are um, examples of injustice everywhere. And so across the African continent, we are not immune to that either. And it's not... Every single, you have, you know, on gender, for example, you have countries like Rwanda, which lead the pack globally. The majority of Rwanda's parliament are women, um, and Rwanda really leads the world when it comes to many of those metrics. But across the board, I think in many of the other African countries, it's fair to say that there are significant shortcomings on certain metrics when it comes to gender. There's a lot of shortcomings when it comes to, to some of these socioeconomic metrics. And within certain particular countries and areas also, you would also have some ethnic inequalities, right? So some inequalities that will map along ethnic lines. But very different, I think, from viciousness, I would say, that the viciousness and pervasiveness and institutionalization of white supremacy as it currently exists and as it has existed in the U.S. The closest we have to that on the African continent would be apartheid and its vestiges in South Africa, um, which has also been a very ugly part of South Africa's history. And you still see the vestiges of that today. I think a lot of what you said resonates with the American experience. I'm piecing together the motivations that you described in your life. So this piece around social justice and seeing what your dad did with refugees and with social activism in Africa, combined with this idea of also wanting to give back to the continent and really taking advantage of the opportunities that you had in the U.S. to achieve those two goals. So given all of those and all the other hats you wear, for example, your dual business and law degrees, what led you into healthcare specifically? Right. So, you know, healthcare is very personal. I think that for most people you talk to, 
they have some story, some very personal story about healthcare. And I remember my cousin Jose, when I was very young, who lived in Hu, which is about 100 miles from Accra, where they don't have the same access to healthcare. And he was sick. And without doing the right sort of lab test or setting the problem, he was misdiagnosed with malaria and he was treated for malaria. When in reality, he had a problem with his kidneys. And so by the time his condition had significantly deteriorated, he died. And I, I was there when he, I watched him die. And that's something that, you know, was obviously very painful, right? Because it was needless death, right? If he had had access to, I'm, I'm not talking of, the best, just a decent basic level of, of healthcare, you would have been alive today. So, so that's something that has been a thorn in my flesh, this, this, this understanding of the sorts of inequalities that exist with respect to access to healthcare. And so I've been driven, and of course, my father, because of his healthcare work as well, I've been very exposed to that. So healthcare has always been very personal for me. It's, it's been something that I've always felt very, very, very passionate about. And so when I first went to the U.S., when I first went to college, I went as pre-med. I was going to be a doctor, like most good African kids. And uh, it's funny how even though I, I went off and did something else, I'm back in healthcare. So I, I always tease my father and I tell him, even though I broke his heart by not becoming a doctor, I'm back in healthcare. That's a great story. I'm sorry to hear about your loss. It's such a missed opportunity to say the least when a fairly routine diagnosis, something that a primary care doctor should be able to conduct well, gets misdiagnosed and that leads to so many complications. In this case, in the most extreme scenarios and death, but also in a lot of built up inefficiencies and cost of care to the entire system, not to mention a lot of pain for the individual. So I absolutely hear you on that point. For our listeners who may not be as familiar with the state of healthcare and the historical and recent developments in healthcare in Africa. Can you provide a bit of an overview of the healthcare system and conditions in Africa? I know it's a very big continent, so focusing on regions you're more familiar with would be helpful as well. And especially if you can speak a bit about some differences on the spectrum in terms of those that are potentially more advantaged versus disadvantaged. Yes, so I'm glad you spotlighted that already. Of course, there's incredible diversity uh, across the board. And we're talking of, you know, 54 different countries. I've spent time in about 47 of them, so I do have some perspective. And we operate in currently in West and East Africa um, and from a healthcare perspective. So I can give some relative, but, you know, huge caveats. It's a massive, very diverse region. But, but at a continental level, just to give you a high level, broadly speaking, you know, we're responsible for about 14, 15% of global population. So out of 100 people globally, 15 are Africans. Yet, out of 100, you look at the disease bed, I did a, we're responsible for 26%, right? So even though we're just 15 out of 100 people, population-wise, disease burden-wise, we're 26 out of 100, right? And so, you know, that is disproportionate. And that reality is further exacerbated by the fact that we only have 3% of global healthcare workers. 3%. So 15% of global population, 26% of global disease burden, where by that metric alone, we would need a disproportionate amount of healthcare workers, yet we only have 3% of global healthcare workers. And we're only responsible for 1% of global healthcare expenditure. So it's a serious problem. And this is us at 1.3 billion. Um, we're forecasted over the next you know, 29 years, less than three decades to get to 
2.5 billion, right? So that's an additional 1.2 billion people. So you can just think of what that means in terms of the tax on the existing infrastructure and the demands for healthcare going forward. So it's a real problem. There's an access problem, which is clear. There's a massive fragmentation across the board, right? Generally speaking, you have massive fragmentation, which leads to lack of economies of scale and scope. And there's a quality issue as well where there has to be improvement in quality and, and, and make sure that there's that standardization of care across the board. And so, you know, both from a, an access, um, there's also an affordability issue, right? So it's not just access from a standpoint of uh, the geographical reach of facilities, right? And within X miles is there access to a facility. But even where there's access, there's only access for certain people, right? So, so there's an affordability issue also, which has its own implications for access. And so um, it's a real challenge. It's a real challenge. And of course, you know, there's a spectrum, you know, South Africa has a pretty sophisticated healthcare market. Kenya also has quite a sophisticated healthcare market. Liberia has a, a much less sophisticated healthcare market and, and has a greater infrastructural deficit, right? And, and so there are variations across the board, but as a whole in totality, there's so much more to be done. There's a massive gap that needs to be bridged. I'm curious why there's such a big gap in terms of the healthcare worker side, at least in other more developed countries, there are gaps, but because the wages and the job security is so strong, you tend to find folks trickling into provider roles, be it nursing to, to being doctors. So do you have a sense of why there is such a gap? Because that number you stated that Africa only has 3% of that provider staff is shocking to me, given the need in healthcare in the continent. Yeah, so let me give you an interesting, it's dated information, but I think it will give you a sense of how severe. So as of 21 years ago, we had 65,000 African-born physicians and 70,000 African-born professional nurses who are working outside Africa, who had been pooched, okay? And that was in the year 2000. And so when you think about it from that perspective, in, in the U.S. alone, right, there estimates that you have almost 10,000 Nigerian doctors just in the U.S., whereas in all of Nigeria today, you don't have more than, let's say, 35,000 doctors, right? So that's the real problem. A lot, there's been massive brain drain, and that brain drain has led to this situation where you have even the doctors we produce on the continent. The doctors we train, majority of them go overseas, right? And so it creates a significant problem. It creates a significant problem. And that's why you end up having such an awful doctor-to-population ratio in many of these countries. That makes sense. The pay differential, I would think as well, is so big, especially compared to the US, state developed countries like the UK, that it makes a lot of financial sense for people to move for their occupation, especially in the medical field. But of course, then it leaves this gap in the home countries of these providers where the individuals, the populations that are local don't have access to the quality of care that they deserve. Given this landscape, who are the actors addressing these issues? Do governments have a stronger role historically, or are they so financially constrained that you see more opportunities for the private sector? So companies like Africa Health Holdings and others, or even NGOs or multinationals that are playing bigger roles? Look, the reality is, in a perfect world, it would be great if you know African governments could wake up tomorrow and suddenly 
plug the gap. The reality is that's not possible. You know, there are significant fiscal constraints on the side of government, and there's only so much you're able to do. And so it necessitates private sector stepping in to fill in the gap. And even in, uh, you know, even in the US, the state, it doesn't fill in all the gap either, right? You know, the private sector plays a key role there. So we have no choice but to kind of leverage both the private and public sectors in trying to bridge this gap. And, and we have to tackle it holistically across the board because we obviously need more infrastructure, more doctors, more nurses, retention of them, more training. We need to be able to solve the financing part of it so that we can solve the affordability issue because insurance penetration in many of these markets is less than 10%, right? So there's so many different parts of the whole ecosystem that have to be resolved for us to be able to bridge this gap. Are there opportunities for cross-country collaborations or scaling of some of these initiatives? I ask because in the U.S. and in many countries, because healthcare is so heavily regulated and the regulations can often vary by state, by county, and of course, country to country. Do you see those as barriers or do you see more opportunities within Africa for collaborations or initiatives that can benefit across borders? I mean, look, given our challenges, especially when it comes to when you're looking for specialists, right? And given the promise and potential of digital technology. So if, if I look at telemedicine, for example, um, we've made a lot of inroads in telemedicine and there's huge opportunity there. With the most recent passage of the Africa Free Trade Agreement, I think that there's an opportunity for us to push for some of the harmonization of regulations when it comes there, right? Because that will create an opportunity for us to be able to take advantage of some of these emerging technologies and the Africa Free Trade Agreements to really be able to do some things on a cross-border basis. So I think that opportunity exists, but there still needs to be a bit of, of work done. I want to go back to this idea of Africa Health Holdings to clarify for our listeners. So Africa Health Holdings will look into and invest in companies mostly on the startup side that are focused on addressing core healthcare needs for the African consumer. Is that a fair characterization of Africa health holdings? Or are there other elements, for example, advisory roles that you also take in some of these startups that you can expand on? Yeah. So, you know, what we do, I'll say, is we don't play on the advisory side, okay. right? Because we, we acquire, own, and manage all of these assets. So roll them all up under one centralized management, and we take advantage of the economies of scale and scope and being able to drive some of the synergies to drive down costs and to improve quality. Are there any specific focuses within healthcare that you're prioritizing, especially thinking about COVID and if that's had any impact on your short-term versus long-term investment theses? Yeah, so look, we, we've always thought technology was going to be a huge part of our journey. And COVID, so we already invested in remote capabilities and telemedicine pre-COVID, but it was very slow adoption. And I think COVID has accelerated the adoption care for digital technologies on the consumer side. And so one of the benefits that has come from COVID has been everyone is going digital because people realize that we were forced to. And so we've seen some huge opportunities for us to actually continue to push our digital healthcare solutions and to still meet the needs of people, even where they can't have the same sort of mobility. Are the solutions you're focused on geography constrained? Are there specific countries or regions that are higher growth or higher opportunity areas? Or are you looking at truly scaling some of these startup solutions across the broader continent? Yeah, so I mean, most of what we do is once we like to take a lot of these solutions on a pan-African basis. So if I take the telemedicine, for example, 
Uh, we piloted it quite successfully in Ghana. Where this year, we're, we're taking that solution to Kenya and to Nigeria and vice versa. When we come up with interesting innovations in Kenya, we'll, you know, we'll take that and we'll export it to the other countries in which we operate. In your work owning, managing these companies, what have you encountered as some of the biggest challenges as well as the biggest benefits of this model? Look, one of the biggest benefits is scale, right? And so you're able to really take advantage of scale and leverage the economies of scale. So whether it's purchasing power, whether it's data across the board, um, there's so many advantages of scale, which you know accrues to us as a company. The second thing also is, um, and this is why uh, this doesn't work on an advisory basis, right? And why we have to, we have to actually own and run this as a coherent strategy where these are our businesses is your ability to actually effect change is predicated on being able to operationalize the synergies. So, you know, if I'm doing advisory and I'm, you know, consulting or providing recommendations to all these fragmented businesses, I can't operationalize the synergies, I can't implement. And so realizing those benefits, right, that will come from what we do is left up to third parties where we have no control over that. And so we didn't find that to be quite optimal. It made a lot more sense for us to actually be able to be in control of end-to-end and to be able to implement and to be able to, you know, case in point of the 40 facilities we have in our network, I can wake up tomorrow, I can implement a new EMR and across the board in all the countries we operate, you know, it, it goes live. I can't do that if it was fragmented and we didn't have ownership. I then have to go to every single one and convince them and so from a friction perspective, it's just not efficient. And so there's a much higher ROI, both from not just from an economic perspective, but even from an impact perspective, there's a higher impact ROI from being able to, to have ownership and control ownership by that. Given the scale that you're describing and the various different points in the healthcare delivery system that Africa Health Holdings spans, how do you engage investors to help them understand the mission that you're trying to accomplish and bring them along the journey? And also, have you found that a lot of the investors you're engaging are African or are you also leveraging some external capital from Western or non-African sources? Um, so I think that we've been able to quite successfully tell our story. And importantly, I think that the impact on the ground has been able to tell that story, right? Um, and we've been able to get some incredible global investors who have who've been a part of this journey. You know, we have investors, US-based, you know, a lot of our investors are US-based, but we also have some investors that are based in Asia, and then we have some investors that are based um, in Africa as well. And so we're able to mobilize this group of global investors with global experiences and to leverage that, you know, to really help us build Africa's healthcare future, as our big vision is. And so I think that the beauty of it also is we're not just at a stage where this is conceptual or it might be difficult to understand where we're already at a stage where we're seven, 250,000 patients every year and in three different geographies. And we intend to scale that even more where, you know, we want to over the next few years, we want to get to 5 million patients. And so we have some aggressive, ambitious goals to really solve the healthcare challenges on the continent. And we're really fortunate to have some of the most prominent and exciting investors. We have, we have people like uh, Briar Capital, who have been really incredible in supporting us on this journey. So, so that's something where I think we've been quite fortunate to have great 
investors that are aligned on the values and that are aligned on the vision um, and that have been quite supportive in helping us do what we do. In the context of everything you described above, can you describe a bit of what Africa Health Holdings does and how you envision Africa Health Holdings fitting into the overall mission and narrative of solving sort of the key motivations that you have outlined throughout your life? Yeah, look, so our big thing is, you know, internally we say, look, we're building Africa's healthcare future. And the way we're going about doing it is we want to be able to solve the healthcare needs of the African consumer. And so that is, you know, we're trying to democratize access. We're doing this in lots of innovative ways, both through use in telemedicine, but also using even that hybrid model where there's some places, take telemedicine. I'll tell you what's interesting, okay? Telemedicine sounds like, yes, this is a solution to democratize access, but you have to contextualize it for our continent where majority of people still use feature phones. Smartphone penetration is rapidly growing, but it is still a minority of the population. And even with that, there's the question of affordability of mobile data. And so in a counterintuitive way, telemedicine, if you just do it app based on your phone, actually reproduces inequalities because it means that only the very rich have access to that, right? So you need to rethink how you use telemedicine to democratize access. And that's where we take a hybrid model to say, look, we'll put in these microclinics with telemedicine where people can come in right, where there's strong internet there, and they can use some of those virtual doctor's stations to be able to interact with doctors, right? You need to really adapt some of those technologies to make sure that they map and they actually solve some of these peculiarities and idiosyncrasies, right? And so for us, it's really about how do we take innovation and technology and how do we adapt that to our, our African idiosyncrasies and use that to come up with healthcare solutions to the African consumer. And so both offline and online across the board, we're, sol- we're solving these healthcare needs. In what you just described, one interesting piece that I picked on is this piece around infrastructure. So there's a lot of tangential and overlapping industries that all are essential to enabling this broader goal of healthcare. So in your work through Africa Health Holdings, do you collaborate with, for example, construction or infrastructure or even fintech or other industries where they're providing consumers with an enabling technology or an enabling service or product that then helps them to get to better access for healthcare. Yes. So no partnerships are key to our growth strategy. And in fact, especially on the technology side, there are lots of partnerships we've been doing. Of course, we've been focusing on our own on building technologies, but we've also been partnering with others, especially when it comes to applying AI. We signed an MOU with Sumitomo where we've been working with them on being able to leverage some of their AI technologies that apply to our context, where the thing with AI and the, the promise, the danger of it, of course, is AI can do a lot of extraordinary things and there's a lot of promise for it when it comes to healthcare. But you also need to be careful because we've seen so much research on how AI can be inadvertently racist and sexist, right? Because you need to pay attention to the data sets. And so those are some of the things we can bring to bear because we can bring relevant data sets that are you know, rooted in, in these local communities and representative of, of the communities in which we operate. And we can help train these algorithms against those data sets. And so those are some of the partnerships that we've been pursuing to see how we can leverage those capabilities and those technologies to further our goals. There are definitely a lot of synergy opportunities with other groups or organizations tackling similar challenges. I'm going to pivot a bit to forward-looking projections. 
Where do you see are some of the biggest opportunities for short-term as well as longer-term impact in the healthcare space across Africa? So short-term and long-term. Short-term, um, I see a huge opportunity in the consolidation space where I think there's a huge opportunity to be able to continue to create scale because of the fragmentation and to improve what already exists significantly. Um, so I see that short-term opportunity. You also have a huge wave of uh, doctor-owned practices and doctor-owned facilities where there's no proper succession plan um, and they've all, they're all around retirement age. And so, so, so that's a huge challenge also in many of the markets. And so there's an opportunity to really uh, professionalize and, and bring those onto the network and, and improve and, and, and transform them. In the long term, uh, we see tremendous opportunity in digital health. That's the future where we're building towards. In digital health specifically, are there specific points or services or offerings that you think are higher potential? So for example, at least in the US, telemedicine around primary care delivery, as well as connecting patients to behavioral health services and mental health services have been two themes that have become a lot more popular because of patient needs during COVID. Are there similar or different areas within digital health that you think has greater potential in the African context? Yeah, so look, I think that there's certain verticals that lend themselves quite well um, when it comes to digital health. One of them is mental health, where we're doing that on our platform, and we, we see tremendous opportunities there. Um, it helps solve the issue of stigma, right, where people worry about the stigma and not maybe coming to an investment facility. So that's a huge opportunity. Another is dermatology, where, you know, uh, skin is top five disease burdens. Um, in many of the markets in which we operate. And it's often linked to all sorts of other parts, right? So sometimes you might have, for example, it might see a manifestation, a dermatological manifestation, but the real issue is might be a venereal disease, for example. So that skin also lends itself very well for telemedicine. And so that's one thing we're also looking at. But the other thing also that we're quite excited about and, and we're making inroads in is, is around even wearables. What wearables allows us in terms of preventive medicine, we're also actively looking at genetics and how we incorporate genetics into delivery of care so that you can have more personalized medicine. So we're trying to figure out how we can leapfrog on the delivery of care and on really looking at preventive care. So these are some of the areas that I'm quite excited about. Digital health is absolutely one of the frontiers of medicine right now. However, a more pressing need, especially around COVID these days, is around vaccine distribution and administration. Can you speak a bit about how that's unfolding in Africa? And if you think that the rollout as well as the aftermath will be ultimately beneficial for Africa in terms of getting that system right and what those implications may be moving forward for healthcare delivery? So look, right now, you know, uh, COVAX has supported some of the African countries. Ghana was the first to receive shipments of 600,000 vaccines, um, which will vaccinate 300, you know, if you think of it from a two-dose perspective, that's 300,000 people. They get both doses. And that is 1% of the population, right? So there's still a massive gap. Um, and there's some serious concerns around that even with all the support that's going to come from COVAX, that we still will not be anywhere near where we need to be in terms of reach an optimal numbers of vaccination. And so um, here again, I think the private sector can play a huge role. We are part of a consortium led by M Pharma, which is trying M Pharma, which is one of our portfolio companies on, on the Golden Palm investment side. They've rolled out a very ambitious program to look to see how can we vaccinate 100 million Africans. 
And how can we do that by leveraging public-private partnerships where the private sector will get involved and will contribute funding? And it's tied, you know, the idea is to tie it as part of an economic recovery. Because just look, the, the reality in our market is COVID is, has obviously been a devastating public health crisis, but it's also been a devastating economic crisis. Um, and unlike, you know, the US, for example, where the, the, there was a massive stimulus bill and there was another one that was sent, which was sorely needed, many African countries simply do not have the fiscal space, right, to even be able to pass a stimulus. And so people are struggling and people, people a lot of people depend on day-to-day on -day livelihoods to be able to feed themselves and their families. And so there's a, there's, a, there's a compelling, overriding need to get people back to work and to be able to get the economy back to track and to be able to get back to as normal as we can from a pre-COVID perspective. And so this is where the, the private sector, we're involved in, in, in those conversations and those plans. And, and we think there's room for the private sector to help from everything, from the funding to procurement to the distribution to supply chains across the board. That makes a lot of sense. A final question on this section is really what from your perspective and from your experiences are the unique challenges and opportunities for investing in companies in Africa? So look, what I'll say is I think it would be disingenuous for me to sit and say that Africa is going to give you the best returns in the world. It just won't, quite frankly. And from a risk-adjusted perspective, it most certainly will not. But what I will say is, whereas in the past, um, I think you had a very different perspective from an economic perspective of the continent. I think you've seen a lot of that change. You have a region of the world that is currently the fastest growing globally. Up to 2050, the rest of the world is flat or declining. The only parts of the world that will be growing, demographically speaking, is Africa and Asia. From 2055 onwards until the end of the century, Asia will be on a decline. Africa will continue to increase all the way through 2100, right? And so by 2050, you're going to have a, a situation where one in four people globally will be African. And so when you think about it from that perspective, I think that it makes total sense for anyone to want to have exposure to that sort of growth. And I think you're starting to see the validation of that. You know, one of our portfolio companies, Flutterwave, we invested in Flutterwave early on when it first started at a $2.5 million valuation. And last week, Flutterwave announced its uh, Series C in which Tiger Global, PayPal, Salesforce, all these guys invested and valued the business at over a billion dollars. And all of this accomplished in four or five years. Really extraordinary. And so you're starting to see, you know, Paystack was acquired by Stripe for $200 million in, in the space of just a few years. You're starting to see some of these unicorns emerge, you're starting to see some of these acquisitions emerge. And I think that's starting to validate the investment opportunity on the continent. I think it's still, we're still in the early innings. And I think there's a huge advantage to people paying attention and getting involved. Of course, one has to be quite thoughtful in how they go about approaching it. But I um, I see incredible promise um, for the continent. And, and I think that there are ways in which its growth trajectory is untethered from the rest of the world. So from a diversification perspective, if I'm constructing an optimal portfolio, and let's say if 5% of my portfolio has, has Africa exposure, worst case, if that goes to zero, it's not going to take down my portfolio, right? But if that growth trajectory, which is what we are seeing, um, continues to happen significantly. If you can 20x on that, the at a portfolio level, that's significant, right? Now your your portfolio doubles. So there's that asymmetry that I think is is actually quite attractive. And this last piece, 
I want to open it up to your general thoughts around personal leadership, growth, and advice. So many of our listeners are navigating their professional journeys or potentially looking to pivot in their careers. As somebody who has worn many hats in terms of occupations, but also geographies and people that you've been exposed to, do you have any general thoughts or advice that you can share with our listeners? Sure. Uh, there are a few that I'll share. Look, one I think is a, a mentor of mine, um, Rob Refkin, who's the CEO of Compass, um, the real estate tech company. He told me this when I was a he, he told me this when I was a freshman in college um, about 15 years ago, and it's stuck with me since. Where he told me to, you know, imagine it was my 60th birthday, and I had to give us my loved ones were throwing this party for me, and I kind of have to give this. Uh, speech, right? Reflecting on my life. And I should kind of write that. Um, and along those lines, as others who said, you know, what would you want people to say at your, you know, in your obituary or whatever it is, right? And it was an interesting exercise, right? Because it forces you to think about when you remove yourself from the day-to-day weeds or figuring out this job and that job and what I want to do here and what class should I take or what job should I apply for? When you can think at that high level and really ask the difficult questions of what do I want my life to look like? What should this narrative be? Right? What do I want to really spend my time doing? And I think to also recognize that life is a gift and we take it for granted. We assume uh, we're always going to be alive, but we're not. Right? And every day we wake up, some people don't wake up. Right? And so the, there's a sense in which I think we want to really think about what's the purpose of our life and how are we going to use this time we have on this earth? And what are we going to do with it? And to almost think about it from that perspective and to have them kind of be the guiding light. So, so don't just get caught up too much always in, in the weeds of the day-to-day, um, but, but take a step back to reflect on some of the broader implications of, of life and purpose. So, so that's one thing I, I'll, I'll certainly share. The second, I think, related to that is I think the most important treasure in life for me are people and experiences. Um, And I think it's important to make time for that. Too often we get wrapped up in the day-to-day of life and we have to be intentional about it. Um, We have to actually carve out time. These days, I actually try to carve out time to invest in my relationships because relationships are like plants. And anyone who's been a plant dad or plant mom knows that. Um, you can't just leave plants alone and think they would even succulents after a while will die. (laughs) And so I think it's really important to invest in people, invest in relationships and spend time, you know, for people in the graduate programs, take time to just meet, you know, every day you eat breakfast, you eat lunch, you eat dinner. One or two of those opportunities to do that with someone and to really get to know people at a real level and not not the surface B-school thing of just trying to figure out from a networking perspective, but but to really not think about networking and really think about building genuine relationships and community and get to know everyone, not just the person who might be working in the industry you care about, because it's one of the things that have amazed me in this world has been serendipity and how I have been the beneficiary of tremendous, tremendous love and support from people. And it's happened in the most unexpected ways. And it's happened because I think I opened myself up to just building relationships organically with people and it's come back in, in, in so many wonderful ways. So, and then of course, experiences, as I mentioned, immerse yourself in experiences, see the world. Everyone should come and visit at least some African country. Do different things, right? Put yourself out of your comfort zone. Uh, look out for diverse, experiences, diverse communities, diverse people, um, expand your horizons and spread your life. Tomorrow is not guaranteed to take advantage of today. If you like what you're hearing, please don't forget to like, 
subscribe and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.